Betches Media presents Betches Moms with hosts Aileen Drexler and Brittany Levine. Get ready to lock yourself in the bathroom or wherever else you hide from your kids because you'll literally never be alone again. Hello and welcome to the Betches Moms podcast. I'm Brittany. And I'm Aileen. And today we're joined by Dr. Becky, clinical psychologist with an expertise in parenting and child development and a mom of three. Welcome, Dr. Becky. Thank you. So excited to be here. We're very excited to have you. Very. Everyone I speak to, huge fan. Got to follow Dr. Becky. (laughs) Like at this point, I feel like I couldn't parent without you. My son is almost three and like constantly sending your posts to my husband. I'm like, you need to watch this. (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you. The, I mean, this has all been kind of a wild ride for me, but I get to, you know, talk about the things I like to talk about and think about the things I like to think about and connect with so many amazing parents. It's been it's been a dream. That's great. So today you're here to talk to us about parent-child relationships, tantrums, and emotion regulation. Um, which seems to be most of your specialty. Um, could you tell us about yourself and, and like dive deeper into this? Yeah. So I guess uh, a year and a half ago, I would have just said I'm a clinical psychologist and I do a variety of kind of therapy with adults. It's actually usually surprising to people. I, I haven't seen kids and done play therapy in a really long time in my practice, but I do therapy with adults, parents and non-parents. And I run parenting groups. I love talking about parenting. And so I spend a lot of my professional life thinking about kids, but actually working with, you know, working with adults. I'm also a mom of three. So I have a nine-year-old, a six-year-old, and a three-year-old. And I've just learned so much from them. You know, my first kid, you know, I feel like I could like do the parenting things. And in general, I would like watch them be helpful. And I felt really good about myself and I'd have parents in my practice who described, you know, kind of different ways their kids would be reacting. And a part of me would always not quite understand being like, are you really doing the things we, you know, are you really doing the things we're talking about? And then I had my second kid. And as she, you know, got older, I was, I was just like, oh my goodness, this is like a totally different experience. And it just made me think about how different kids are and how kids really need such different things from the same set of parents to thrive. And then how difficult parenting is that if you, I mean, even if you have just one kid, but for the, all the kids you have, you're figuring out what they need. You're figuring out what you need. You're maybe married or in a partnership or, or you're doing it alone. And there, I mean, it's just, you're reparenting yourself so hard. Yeah. And I've always found parenting to just parenting topics, parenting consoles, parenting lectures, parenting groups. I find I come back to my house and I have so much energy that I'd have a day of consults or running groups and you know, my my husband would be like, oh, are you exhausted? And I, I would be like, no, I want to talk to you for 45 minutes. I have so many things to say. And he was the one who was like, you should really share this with more people. Like there should be a way to talk about this with more people. And, you know, forever. I was like, I don't know how I would do that. I don't know what that would look like. And he was like, you should just start writing. And there was one morning I got up early and started writing and I seriously couldn't stop. I was like, oh, I guess I do have a lot of things to say. And then I you know, kind of launched Instagram with nothing in mind except for sharing some thoughts. And that was February 28th, 2020, right before 
COVID fully, you know, became more of a big deal in the States and people yeah. were on their phones and parenting became that much more of a focus. And mm-hmm. then things just kind of went from there. That's crazy. That's yeah. great. So like, yeah. what are, what are the things that you <laughs> talk about? Like, what is your approach to parenting? Is there one? So, yeah, I don't I don't know the exact name for it. Right. There's all these names out there. Gentle parenting, positive parenting. I'm never I'm honestly not one for labels in general. Like I hate diagnosis. I find it just very limiting, very reductionistic. But but I should come up with a name because it helps things travel and talk about them. But Dr. Becky parenting (laughs) something. Yeah, Yeah. it feels a little self-important, but it's, you know, right. I got to think of some non-self-important name. Um, But I really do think about something I know I say a lot, which is this two things are true mentality on my Instagram. That, and I think about it in terms of the whole approach that we can be boundaried and loving. We can take care of ourselves and take care of our kids, right? We can do things that might lead to disappointment in our kids and our kids can feel safer with us as a result. And I feel like so many times in parenting, we feel like there's a choice to make. There's some binary. And I think what's feeling really good to parents is seeing kind of like that multiplicity that I don't have to lose myself when I'm a parent and I can be a really sturdy leader and really empathic. I can make decisions and say no and understand how my kid's feeling. And that can be really good for the whole family system. Like I kind of don't have to choose. And I think that just permeates so many so many of the different things I do. Um, and then I think the other thing I'm always thinking about with kids is, you know, our we're, our kids are being wired early on in their bodies for the rest of their life, right? And that can freak parents out and me too. I'm like, oh my goodness, that's kind of a, <laughs> that's a lot, you know? And the amazing thing about our bodies and brains is they're plastic and we can rewire for sure. That's why I got into the industry or the business of therapy in the first place. It's so compelling. And yet I think the ultimate gift we can give our kids is early wiring that they can rely on down the line, right? To to not have to rewire all of that. And so the idea that we can help parents today do things that both feel good, feel right, feel like they're honoring themselves and their kids and set their kids up for true success. And the way I think we all think about what real success is and feeling at home with yourself and asserting yourself and getting along with others in a way that you're not losing access to yourself. That I know for my three kids, like that's that's really, really compelling in terms of what inspires me to keep going. So you were saying that part of it is feeling empowered as a parent, being um, feeling confident in your decision to say no to your kid and how you say no to your kid. But can you just say no to them? Like how do you how do you set the boundaries when it comes to screen time and TV or and how do you know if you're being too restrictive on certain things or um, saying things the right way where they understand? So that's a that's a great question, and uh, I, I'm gonna maybe maybe my response is a little frustrating. I don't I don't know if any of us know the I don't think there are right decisions, right? I mean, there's certainly things we know not to do, and that are you know unilaterally bad, right? Like don't hit your kids, right? Don't scare them, don't induce fear while you're wiring them to understand what love is. We don't want fear and love to live in this, you know, live together. Um, things like screen time or how much junk food is really okay, or is it okay to stay up late? Or with those decisions, I think a lot of those come back with our own kind of being in touch with what feels right enough to us, our kind of trust that if something didn't go away that felt right today, we can, you know, we can make different decisions tomorrow. 
And yet I think underlying your question is something I think a lot about, which is to really be in touch with, I think, our warm authority. It's not a mean authority, but our warm authority is apparent. We have to separate our decisions from our kids' feelings. And I think mostly largely unconsciously, a lot of us on some level believe if I make a good decision, my kid's going to clap for me or like, you know, give me a thumbs up. Or if my kid is freaking out, that means I made a bad decision. There's this real collapse kind of again, versus that two things can be true, which is like, I can make a decision that I really do believe as much as we any of us believe is the right decision. And my kid can be angry and my kid can be unhappy and I can hold those two things at once. And that's actually what really allows, you mentioned emotion regulation. That's what allows our kids to develop emotion regulation, that they don't experience their emotions as kind of triggering us or making us change our minds, right? That they learn we're okay with their emotions and we can make decisions that feel good, even if they tantrum. That's actually over time, one of the core things that needs to happen. So a kid can learn to regulate their emotions because if they watch their emotions scare us into making a different decision, then they learn, oh, these things must be like really bad because my mom said no to one more show. I cried because that felt so bad to me. And wow, that looks like that's contagious to her. How am I supposed to calm down if this thing inside me is enough to change decisions in a family system? <laughs> right. So, so we have to stay strong for them and we have to control our own emotions when it comes to that. Yeah. And I guess, I guess a, a different version that I would say is reminding yourself like that's my kid's emotional experience that doesn't Dic- that doesn't dictate what I do, but that doesn't also mean I'm cold to it. It doesn't mean I don't care. In fact, I can care about your disappointment and still say no, right? Like that's really important to teach our kids. I care. Let's say it's mom. I want to, I don't know. It's, it's I want to go on a sleepover before, you know, uh, whatever they have the next day. And you're thinking, oh, that's like our cousin's birthday party. And I just know what happens at sleepovers. You're going to be up really late. Like I just, you know, for whatever reason you want to say no. Yeah, You can say no, you're the parent and your eight-year-old is going to be pissed. Okay, mm-hmm. right? I can even say, oh, you're missing that sleepover and all your friends are there. That I, I, I get how that feels. That feels awful. And often a kid will say, oh, so I can go? And it's like, no, like those are two different things. My answer is no. And I actually do care about how that feels to you. And I can, I can talk to you about it, or I can even share stories about when that happened to me, right? Those two things are critical to hold at the same time. So do you feel like it's necessary to explain why you're saying no? I think it depends on the situation. I mean, sure. I think that again, our kids, our kids often feel so out of control. They're in control of so little in their lives that I know for me, when people make arbitrary decisions, it just feels kind of insulting to me, right? But I think the key is noticing when a kid is looking for an explanation versus when their words sound like they're looking for an explanation, but they're really just letting you know they're frustrated, right? So, but why, mom? But why? Oh, great question, sweetie. Well, we have your cousin's birthday party in the morning. And I just think it's, you know, important that we get some rest and show up there, you know, able to I'm able to play with your cousins you never see. But why? But why? Like, that's not actually a question. That's frustration expressed with a question mark, right? So there, I think we want to say, I've already explained it to you. And again, I think we can mean empathic, right? Versus, right, we want to say, stop asking, I told you. But we're not seeing what's really happening, which probably is more something like, look, you keep asking me why, I've already told you. And I think you keep asking why because you're letting me know just how big of a deal it feels, 
for you to miss this and how frustrating it is to be a kid who can't make his own decisions. And then usually the questioning and the looking for the explanation changes because now, Mike, you've connected about what's what's really, really happening in that moment. Is there, so earlier you said something about like things you don't want to do, like instill fear or things like that. Are there some common things that parents do that you they might think is okay that we all kind of feel is like we thought it was okay, but actually is instilling fear or like the restriction isn't right? Um, that's a, another really good question. So, you know, and I think the foundation and I, I firmly, firmly believe it's why I kind of have this name good inside. Like I really believe we're all good inside our kids, us. And I also believe that we're all doing the best we can with what's available, right? To us in that moment. And then maybe we learn something new or we think something and try to do things differently. What I think often falls under that category is we believe we can teach empathy to our kids by telling them how their actions or words make us feel, but that doesn't at all teach empathy to them. And I think that's something that a lot of well-intentioned, well-meaning parents um, do, thinking it leads to one result, but it actually kind of sets the stage for people-pleasing and even you know, kind of codependence later on. I can, t- I can say more about that. <laughs> what would be like an example? <laughs> okay. So your kid says to you, I, after even the sleepover example, like, I hate you or something like that, right? Oh, don't say that. That makes mommy so sad. Why would you do that? That makes me so sad. That makes me so upset. Or you, you're turning, you know, when you and your sister argue, you turn me into a witch and you make me scream at you. So what we're saying to our kids is you do X and that, that is responsible for creating a feeling inside my body. And what kids actually take from that is, wow, my feelings are like, daggers. They they do things to other people. And again, I think we think, oh, but isn't that how our kid learns not to say those things? They should know how it impacts other people. But what we miss there is we have this very outsized role in our kids' lives when they're young, right? Something that's different from our kids' relationship with us than any other relationship is that our kids are 100% dependent on us. They literally need to attach to us, meaning they need us to want to keep them around in order to survive. They can't leave. Like no kid can ever be like, my parent doesn't get me. And so I'm I'm good on my own, right? Like we can say that. It might be hard to say that in our intimate relationships when we're older, but you literally can. Like you could survive. Our kids can't. That changes everything. So our kids are always looking at us wondering what parts of me are desirable to my parent, meaning they kind of want to keep me around, literally. And what parts of me do they want to push away with rejection, with sending me to my room, with the look of, you know, dart eyes we all kind of me too give our kids sometimes. And if we take that example of I hate you and oh, don't make don't say that. That makes mommy sad. We're not teaching empathy. What a kid really learns is not the ang- not the I hate you, but I guess when I'm mad at people. That makes people not want to be with me. I can I kind of destroy them. I overpower them. That makes a kid more frightened of his feelings, which makes them harder to regulate, ironically, um, and makes a kid feel like my feelings in some ways, which kind of is who we are, is a threat to my relationships. This is these are the seeds for, you know, if you think about codependence, which a lot of people talk about in adulthood, it's the idea that 
my job is to take care of other people's. I should be so attuned to other people's emotions and then take care of them. And what do you miss in that? Like any attentiveness to your own needs or feelings until, as we know, as parents, they bubble up and come out in some way. (laughs) Right. So when our kids are young, because they're locked into a relationship with us, when we say to them, that makes mommy sad, they don't learn empathy. They learn my feelings are a threat to relationships with other people. That does not all lead to empathy. That leads to those kind of people pleasing tendencies. So what does mommy say instead? (laughs) <laughs> so let, so what I would say is, right, so what's really going on? I think that's always a question I always ask. In any consult with someone, they bring me a situation and that's just always, I'm like, well, what's really going on there, right? There's always a story under a behavior. There's always a story under words. So what would be going on to a kid, let's use the sleepover example, who says, well, I can't go, I hate you. Like, let's brainstorm together, either of you. Like, what's going on under the surface that leads to the I hate you on the surface? What is the I hate you a window into if you put yourself in that kid's position? He's frustrated that he wants yeah. to go. You're the barrier. To the sleepover and he has no control over right. it. Right. Great. Completely yeah. out of control. Totally. Right. And I'm sure all three of us can remember times as kids that our parents, right, like stopped us. And it's just, yeah, it's so bad because you don't get what you want, but you're also just so put in touch with as a kid, like, oh, this stings to be a kid. Like I'm not in control of my own destiny. Right. That's a really hard feeling to have, to feel like you really want something and someone gets in your way. So to me, under the I hate you is it's just really, really hard to want something so badly and have it stopped from someone else. And that feeling and that experience is so hard to manage inside my body that it exploded outside of my body in the form of I hate you. We want to teach our kids to regulate the feelings that led to the I hate you. We don't teach them to regulate a feeling that led to something by focusing on the thing's impact on someone else. The impact comes after. It doesn't change the before. Like if you think about the order of operations, frustration, I hate you, that makes mommy sad. By the time we get to that makes mommy sad, the thing's already happened. Like it just beyond leading to codependence, it's also just not effective from an order of operation standpoint. So what would I say to my kid? I'd probably say something like this. And by the way, for everyone listening, like, I don't know what I'd actually say, but in this made up example where I can say the nights thing, I'm going to say that. So, (laughs) you know, I don't know if that would happen in the heat of the moment, but I would want to say, wow, those are really big words. Oh my goodness. You know what? I need a deep breath. (sighs) There's something about this that feels so, 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 so bad, not normal, bad, but horrible, horrible, bad. I know I need a deep breath. I don't know about you. And then I think this is like a great line. when I think to say it, which is in our family, I'm always going to care more about how something feels to you than how that feeling happens to come out of your body in words. So let's take a moment and let's talk about it and figure something out together. Again, the figuring out might not be going on the sleepover, but maybe it is setting up another sleepover or having a FaceTime that night when whatever it is. But the idea is I'm going to think about what led to that and prioritize that knowing that's where we can actually change. So the next time I can feel frustration they're actually going to be less likely to say the I hate you because they've learned a skill and gotten the kind of co-regulation from me they need to change the behavior in the first place. And to me, this is also like a tenet of my approach that I really mean this. I am more than anything else. I'm just a pragmatist. Like I like all this stuff with kids. It feels good to them. It feels good in the family. But but it's also more effective. Like at the end of the day, we're, we're teaching skills. So it all kind of works together. What if you're now dealing with a child 
that it goes a little bit deeper. They might have anxiety or other things going on. Could you approach this in the same way? And what are some signs to look out for? So, you know, anxiety is one of those words that can mean so many different things, right? Um, But when I think about the word anxiety in kids and adults, I think that there's something about I feel really uncomfortable. And I think often anxiety is, it's actually kind of ironic. It's like a discomfort around having discomfort or it's like fear of discomfort, right? There's like, but, right? Yeah. Um, and so if we think about that's what's happening, so maybe, oh, I don't, maybe it's the, I don't, I want to go on the sleepover, but I don't know if I want to go, right? I'm kind of nervous about that or I'm nervous about my math test. Who knows what the anxiety is about or separation anxiety, right? I think one of the main ideas I have around anxiety is that what our kids need most when they're anxious is our presence, not our solutions, Right, I always think about a kid having anxiety, and I, I like to think about things visually because I think it helps. It helps me at least understand because our words and logic can, you know, do a poor job. I think so. A kid in anxiety, I always feel like they're in a little hole in the ground, and that as a parent, our instinct is also is often to put our hand in the hole and yank our kid out. Like, get out of there! It's not so bad. Here, let me show you. Like, there's a beautiful world around you, and yet it's never helpful. And for a couple of reasons. Number one, like I feel like a kid, I always imagine a kid in the hole be like, but I'm in the hole. Like, do you see me? I'm here. Like if it's such a small hole that you can just pull me out, I would have just jumped out myself. So obviously something's getting in the way. But also when a parent goes in and yanks a kid from somewhere, it makes a kid feel like, oh, I guess the next time I feel that hole again, like that is actually so bad because even my parent doesn't want to get into that hole with me. They just want to get me out. So it actually builds that fear of fear or that anxiety about anxiety versus jumping in the hole with your kid. Because when you jump in a hole with your kid, two things happen. And I'll be more specific and get out of this metaphor, I promise, is that you are leaving your kid not alone, but with you. That's always better. But you're also inherently saying, I'm not scared of this feeling. Because if I'm willing to jump into it, it doesn't scare me. Like it's just, you know, I see it's a big deal for you, but it's not scary to me. So my kid is nervous about, you know, let's say it's going on a sleepover, joining a group of kids on the playground. To me, yanking a kid out of the hole would be like, it's not a big deal. You know, these kids are from your class. It's kind of like always a version of saying, don't feel that way. (laughs) Or you don't have to feel that way. Like invalidating it. Yeah. Totally invalidating it. And we think we can convince kids out of any feeling. It's just never worked. It's never worked. It's never going to work. It just, the feeling beats our thoughts. We feel before we think we can't undo a feeling. It's there. And a kid feels like their parent understands it or the feelings there and they feel alone with it. Those are the only two options. So the other alternative would be at this playground. Oh, there's something about joining that group that feels bad to you right now. Hmm. Okay. You can join when you're ready. Or I love the language of wondering. Oh, I wonder what would make it a little bit easier. It's kind of very gentle and it activates, I think, a kid's natural problem solving without doing it in a way that feels like it's more my agenda <laughs> than my kids. Um, and so I think a main idea when your kid is anxious is reminding yourself, again, our natural instinct is to try to fix it. But that only actually wires a kid for more anxiety because the thing they remember the next time they're anxious is, oh, my parent was just as scared of this feeling as as I am. Right. What if, um? so like just kind of circling back, you mentioned tantrums earlier and then like bringing this anxiety and like what your par- you yeah. yourself as a parent are doing in front of your ki- kids. Is there like actions that we have to be even more mindful of that we're doing besides like trying to like invalidate their feelings, like just things that maybe you don't notice that they're watching us. 
um, that we could kind of be careful around or managing. I mean, we all having like probably worse anxiety because our parents maybe didn't know how to not do that. Totally. So is there, um, do you have advice about like gauging your audience <laughs> as in your children and also like how to manage your own like image to your children so they don't take that on? Yes. So uh, I think that when we have kids, like it's such a mirror to ourselves about the way we were raised, right? And the things we struggle with, right? Because everything's a let's mirror. Say it's a tantrum, right? <laughs> yeah. Your kid has a tantrum. And then when we try to fix it or change it, it's really nothing about the kid. The kid is a tantrum. It leads to some really uncomfortable feeling in our body. And then truly, we just want to stop the tantrum to stop the feeling in our own body. Like our kid is a total pawn in our game. And then what happens intergenerationally is we keep passing along these patterns of no one tolerating hard feelings, right? It just keeps going on and on. There's, I don't think there's any parenting technique or script that's more powerful to your kid than all the work we're doing on ourselves. And I, and I know nobody wants to hear that because I even hear that. I'm like, that's like so annoying to hear. Like, really? Don't you have something a little more short-term or a little more effective than that? Um, and I think about parents I've worked with for a handful of times in my practice. And like, I always think about this one parent who's like, Becky, can, for one time, can you just say, like, it's your kid's fault? Like, your kid has to fix himself and like, you're doing a great job. <laughs> um, and it's not that I think parents are doing a bad job. I don't think that at all. I just think that it's our responsibility to like try to mature and grow and develop better coping skills ourselves. Because if our kids are absorbing our coping skills, then the more we work on ourselves, the, the more they can take in. So I think that's my, you know, it's, it's the number one thing I think I try to work on with my kids. And I encourage people to think of it the same way, not as in it, because I think we can so quickly go into, oh, so you think I'm messed up? So I'm messed up. No, not as in a, I'm messed up. I actually think there's something empowering about that to think, oh, I can help my kid even if my kid doesn't change anything. Like I can be in control. There's something I think very empowering about that. Right. So like for somebody who like personally, I feel like my anxieties project, I project my anxieties on my child and I, they come out a lot in different ways and I have to try and hide them. What are things that a parent with that does have anxiety can do to try and not let that come out while also working with their own therapist. <laughs> yeah. While also trying to just like figure it out themselves, totally not trying to mess their kids up. So, <laughs> so a couple of things I would say is that we don't want to make our kids feel responsible for our feelings, right? We know that, but we also don't want to pretend we don't have feelings, right? Because our, for example, you're, somewhere, let's just say, or maybe Brittany, you even have an example. Like, so where's an example that, you know, okay, my anxiety is like high right now around my kid. What, what might that be? When we're outside in front of the house and he runs away from me, like in a way where like he's about to run into the street or you're just, yeah, he keeps running and I tell him to come back. He doesn't listen. And I try and, you know, speak to him and be like, I need you to come back here. I need you to listen to mommy. I'm trying to keep you safe. I don't want to stop you from having fun, but let's play over here. And he like thinks it's funny and he just keeps running. And especially in my case right now, eight months pregnant, I can't chase him. So I get really angry and upset. And I just, I sometimes I can't control yelling at him. So here, here's, I think the, the differentiator, like you're there, you're feeling nervous. You need him to cooperate. We don't, 
we don't want to make our kids doubt their perceptions by telling them, oh, I feel fine when clearly we're not. Right. So, and I'll, I'll get back to this example, but maybe it's most obvious. My kid sees me crying watching a news story or I don't know, something. My kid's like, oh, mommy, are you upset? We're like, no, I'm fine. Like, that's a, that's a lie. And the last thing I want for my kid is to say, I guess I'm not so good at perceiving the emotions of other people. Right. Now, we also don't want to say, yeah, I'm sad this thing happened and I need you to be good all day. So mommy has a better day. Like, okay, there's a lot between those two things. Right. But we actually want to label our emotions for kids. Like, we actually do. We just don't want them to feel responsible. So, in that situation, it might be, you noticed mommy was crying. You were right to notice that. Yeah, there's some things on my mind and I do feel a little sad. And adults feel sad just like kids do. And one of my jobs is to take care of my feelings. I'm still your mom who can take care of you when I'm doing that. Like I'm validating the perceptions. I'm not shying away from just the truth, but I'm also not putting it on my kid. So for you, I could see you saying to your son outside of the moment, look, we're going to go outside and here's the thing. My number one job is to keep you safe. I also, as you know, I'm pregnant. I can't move as quickly as I used to be able to. And I feel really, really nervous when you get too far away from me. That's that, and you can say that's my feeling. That's not yours. The but what that feeling tells me, because it's information to me, right? Our feelings are information. So helpful to remind kids that what that feeling tells me is me and you need to do some more practice inside about like how to stop and how to go to make sure we're as safe as possible when we go out. So I'm talking about a feeling I have, but um, not even saying you need to stay close to me. So I don't feel nervous right now. Now I'm like mixing up whose feeling is who, right? But the goal isn't to not have feelings, right? I think it's helpful for kids to know adults have feelings too, but to talk about it, I love the line. You were right to notice that. I just think it's like a beautiful confidence building line to kids when they do see you having, you know, you look angry. Yeah. You're right to notice that. That's okay. You know, and then like you can go from there, but right those emotions just aren't their fault or aren't their responsibility to fix. Right. Okay. So I guess it's like, you're just saying it's not about taking feelings away from everything. It's just explaining where they're coming from and making sure that they don't feel like they're responsible for the feelings, which I feel like it could be a thin line in those situations because they are responsible, but it's not Well, look, them, your example is like, <laughs> I feel like your example is a little different than what some other, a different example around anxiety, because I don't even think that's really anxiety. You're just like your kids being unsafe. But to me, the example is like, you're at the playground with your kid and you know, you're like, I'm going to let my kid climb. I feel like that's good for my kid. I know I'm very anxious. Right. So there, the way I would explain it, if your kid notices and be like, you are right to notice mom's trying to figure out how close to stay to you. And I even think you can say to a kid, right. One of the things I'm working on even my own life is taking more risks, right? People can take risks. People can be really careful. It's really great to take risks. That's just hard for me. And you noticed I'm working on that right now versus please don't climb up that part of the ladder. It makes mommy too nervous. Like those are really different. That specific um, example, I've, I've used that before pretty sure coming from you. And it it definitely like, that's a, definitely another situation where I'm like, oh my God, I can't handle this right now. I'm going to have a heart attack. But I do, I did follow that and it worked out well. Because again, as our kids are like wiring their, they don't know how the world works. So we need yeah. to remind them, like my feelings live in me and your feelings 
live in you, right? And so yeah. telling them the story of how we understand our feelings, right? That that gives them a story to understand and then they don't have to default to, oh, it must be my fault. That's like how kids default. That's their default if they're not explained because that's actually a way they get control yeah. by self-blame yeah. or self-doubt. That's the way they can understand something that's confusing. So when we give a different narrative, that actually is very kind of, uh, that brings safety to them. They like, then they can take a deep breath. I'm going to definitely use that. I haven't had my kid yet. I'm pregnant and uh, I already have anxiety about falling and all of that. So I can't <laughs> wait. <laughs> Just switching gears just a little, you talk a lot about apologies and not forcing apologies. Can you talk about that? Because I feel like that's a, that's a topic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I guess I'm like not such a fan of forcing like period, right? Forcing apologies, right. forcing manners. I think when we do, we operate on one of like the core fears that sometimes drive us as a parent where we see a behavior in our kids today and we fast forward like five years, 10 years, sometimes 20 years to like what that means about our kids down the line. Like, oh, my kid's never going to apologize. Right. And then we intervene today based on that fear versus like what's happening today. Right. So I also think with the apology thing specifically, we, we often kind of interpret it in the most negative light. Right. So my kid hits another kid, let's say on a play date, and then my kid shuts down. We're like, did you not see that that kid is upset? Like, and then we think, what is wrong with my kid? Is my kid a sociopath? You know, does my kid have no empathy? Now, now, first of all, in that moment, what's interesting is I think it's a prime example of where our kids are a pawn in our own game. Because when we tell them to apologize, I don't think anyone, when they're calm, actually thinks that that apology is like in a forced way is like making them more empathic. Like, it doesn't even make sense, right? But on some level, we're like, as long as my kid apologizes, I can reclaim the like, I'm a good parent feeling. So it's like truly just about finding that through our kid, which isn't good for anyone. When a kid doesn't apologize, they feel shame. They feel so much shame about what just happened that they shut down. It's a real animal defense state. We talk all the time about fight or flight as an animal defense state. Those are totally legitimate animal defense states. Other ones involve freezing or kind of quote playing dead, right? So when a kid does something and then shuts down, if you actually look at a kid, they, they literally look like a frozen animal. They're like not even moving. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And I think it's easy to interpret that as coldness. It's threat and fear, right? So what helps a kid move out of a state of shame and threat is what we've been talking about this whole time. It infuses everything I talk about, which is connection and being able to show your kid that you see the good kid inside them, even underneath this quote, bad behavior of hitting and not apologizing. So versus the most negative interpretation, I always think about like, what's the, I try to think about what's the most generous interpretation. And if I operate based on that, I'd be like, wow, my kid did this. I'm so, yeah, of course they know it's wrong. They also are just like, they're, they're dysregulated. They're physiologically flooded. They're in this freeze state. If I really want to teach them anything, we have to first unfreeze someone. Like you can't teach someone anything in that state. So in that situation, I think de-shame and model. Like, and I actually think that's a formula for most things I think about teaching kids, de-shame and model. So how would I de-shame it? I'd probably say something like this, like, oh, it's hard to find your apology voice right now. It's like, it's like so deep, actually, that communication. Like you're kind of letting your kid know, I see something in you, even when you can't access it yourself. 
I obviously know you're a good kid, even when you did this thing, right? Or maybe I'd even say, oh, I have times like that too. Uh, you know what? I see it or I hear it. I'll use it for you. Hey, Billy, I'm so sorry I hit you. I was having a really hard time and I was frustrating and frustrated. It came out as a hit. I know that's not okay. Is there any way I can help? You know, and then meanwhile, what's Billy going to do? Usually a kid's confused. You're like, what? what? What's happening? You know, um, and you're like, forget it, Billy. You're, you're fine. Just move on. I was doing that for my child, not for you. Um, but it's, it's amazing to me with that specific topic. Parents in my practice who've said, like, seriously, I did that three times. And like, I can't even tell you the fourth time. Like, my kid apologized. And this is a kid who wouldn't apologize for years. Like, because if we feel bad inside, and it's why I talk about good inside, our whole system shuts down. There's nothing more important than like trying to find feeling good. We know that as adults, right? Like, you know, that feeling of not apologizing just in terms of like shutting out the world. It's actually like, I need to protect everyone. Like, I'm so bad. I need to shut everything down. And all good things come from, yes, from boundaries. I might say like, I'm not going to let you hit Billy. And I'd sit between my kid and Billy, but then also showing my kid that I see a part of him that he's struggling to find. And that is really what allows for our kids to grow and change. Is, is it really hard? It's hard for parents to do that though. Like at first, right? Like <laughs> I can't imagine well, that just being like <laughs> the natural Reaction. Well, I think the question is this for parents listening is how do I approach now my own big struggles? Like when I do something that I really know I don't want to do, I yell at my kids or something happens at work. When you notice your own self-blame, if you have a narrative of like, I'm the worst or I'm worthless, right? Like these kind of core narratives that pop up all over the place, we're actually really learning what was layered next to our struggles when we were a kid. No baby is born struggling with something and having a narrative of self-blame. Like it's ridiculous to think about. Like, I don't know any baby who's crying for food. And then it's like, I shouldn't be crying. I want so many things. Like, I don't know, like just doesn't happen. And so again, speaking to that wiring, if you, like for everyone even to think in that example, if I hit a kid on a play date and I didn't apologize, what would my parents have done? You don't have to remember it literally to probably know with pretty sure accuracy, probably what would have happened. Um, and then we enact that with our kids unless we're actively working on being kind of a cycle breaker. So if you know, it's it's different levels of hard for different people based on going back to like kind of our own stuff and our own wiring And how much by the time we've become a parent, we've already been working on that stuff or, which is still amazing, we're saying, oh, this is the first time in my life I'm going to be working on that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This is great stuff to keep in mind. I'm like taking notes in my head. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. (laughs) This is what I have to do next time. (laughs) Look, Um, I mean, you know, to me, learning anything new and thinking, just like we're saying with our kids, it's important to watch out for your own kind of not good enough feelings or, oh, I'm, I'm like fucking my kids up, you know, left and right, according to Dr. Becky. Yeah. Right. Like it's, and I, I really do another one of these two things I hold at once is that like the early years matter and it's never too late. And not one of those things is more true than the other. Like they're both true. Um, and it's never, ever too late. I, 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 I if I think about people my age, like, whose childhoods were a long time ago, if my parents or people said, like, if my parents today came back to me and said, you know what I realized? I did things this way and it probably didn't feel good to you. 
I feel like everyone I know would be like, oh my God, that would feel so amazing. Like, it's just never too late, like coming back and repairing and reflecting. And if they were like, and even now I can be pretty judgmental when you share something about yourself that's maybe not in line with how I would do things. And I'm going to be really working on that from this point out. I mean, isn't that like, oh, that like my whole life would change, right? Like that would feel so amazing. And we're not kids anymore, not the way our kids are. So it's never, ever, ever too late. And for anyone listening to this, what I would say is, and I really mean this, take one thing, one, like of all the things, take one. If you wrote down three things, throw two of them in the garbage, just take one. You can always re-listen and it'd be like, that's interesting. I'm going to try that. Or I'm going to think about that and tell yourself that's enough. It truly is. Change takes time. It takes practice. And please know like the actual Becky doesn't do these things all the time. Dr. Becky has like really good ideas, but Becky like is just, <laughs> is just a parent d- doing her best like yeah. the rest of us. We're all works in progress. A hundred percent. All trying. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Becky. This is, I'm looking forward to parenting after talking to you. Um, <laughs> so where can our listeners find you? Your Instagram, you have a podcast, right? Yes. All of the yes. above. So, um, yeah, I'm so excited about so many of the new things I'm doing. So yes, my Instagram is Dr. Becky at good inside all, you know, kind of spelled out. And then I have a ton of workshops and courses. So when you mentioned like, how about, you know, if we think about, okay, I want to work on myself so that, because the truth is when we change ourselves, everything changes with our kids. Like, it's not like we have to be so targeted, just it's almost pays the biggest dividend. So I, it's funny. I always parents always say, "Of all your workshops, I have so many. Which one would you start with?" When I'm, you know, parenting, and I say my reparenting workshop, and a lot of them are like, "Oh, I looked that one up. That one's for me. I mean, the one for my parenting." And I'm always like, "Yeah, no, I that that's still the one. You're you the know? one parenting, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. so exactly. Like, oh, shoot. Um, but I have a whole foundations bundle to start with. There's lots of good stuff. All can be accessed at goodinside.com, and also at goodinside.com. From there, you can sign up for my weekly newsletter. And my podcast, um, which you can also find on Apple or wherever people are listening to your podcast, that's called Good Inside with Dr. Becky. Well, thanks so much. I hope awesome. everyone goes and subscribes to all of that. Um, thanks so much, Dr. Becky. And that is it for this episode of Betcha's Moms Podcast. Please, guys, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, follow us on Apple, Spotify, everywhere you listen to podcasts. And follow Betcha's Moms on Instagram. Follow us. I'm at Aileen. Follow Brittany at Britt Rich. And remember, there are no rules on this podcast. I'm not like a regular mom. I'm a cool mom, right, Regina? Please stop talking. The Betches Moms podcast is produced by Sean Kilby and Jorge Morales-Pico. Editing by Stacey Wong. Social media by Brittany Levine. Guest booking by Nicole Pellegrino. Be sure to follow us at Betches Moms on Instagram. And send us your emails to moms at Betches.com. Betches.